Amina is an activist during the Arab Spring. Her blog, Gay Girl in Damascus, attracts readers from around the world. When she's mysteriously abducted, her followers mobilize, desperate to save her. What they find shocks them. I'm Samira Moyedin, the host of Gay Girl Gone, a new six-part series from CBC. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Ukraine has been living in a state of war for 651 days now, and the end seems nowhere in sight. That's after a summer counteroffensive against Russia failed to make any significant progress, and now a deadlock in the U.S. Congress is threatening to derail U.S. funding for the war. That leaves President Volodymyr Zelensky and Ukrainians looking at the prospect of a very difficult winter ahead. Mark McKinnon is the Globe and Mail's senior international correspondent. He's in Kiev. Mark, hello. Hi, Matt. How are you? I'm well. How would you describe the mood in Ukraine right now? It's, I, I'd say the, the word I've been hearing is depressed. And uh, that's, you know, that's separate from people uh, not being optimistic. I think it's that people are after, as you said, 651 days of this, are starting to realize that um, after the excitement of a year ago where people thought victory was within reach, that this is going to be a very long war and could last for years to come. What's your assessment of of where the war itself stands? I mean, there's a lot of attention paid to what this top Ukrainian military officer said this fall. He said that the war was at a stalemate. Uh, Zelensky contradicted that. But from your perspective, as somebody who has been there and and talked to people on those front lines, where is this war at right now? I think um, I was just at uh, near one of the front lines over the weekend, and the description I got from people... uh, that, that have been fighting there, that are fighting there, is uh, a, a war of attrition. This has been going, this, is, this to them looks like a, a World War I-style trench battle. And that's uh, the message that General Zeluzhny was communicating, I think, in this famous statement. They, he was comparing it directly to the First World War. And uh, so, yeah, the, the, the front lines largely, despite this big Ukrainian counteroffensive over the summer, they really only liberated a few villages, and now the Russians are grinding forward, but again, making only incremental progress so far. But the front lines today look largely like they did a year ago. Given how much uh, was put on that counteroffensive, there are people who have called it a defeat. Is that fair to say? You know, the Ukrainian leadership doesn't like that description. They did liberate some Ukrainian land. There are... Uh, you know, Ukrainians who are living under Russian occupation who no longer are living under Russian occupation. But the expectations were very high. There was this belief that the Ukrainian military could reach the Azov Sea and effectively cut the Russian-occupied areas of the country in two, and that would be the beginning of the end, they thought. So, yeah, it, it is... The expectations were so high and the progress so incremental that it does feel like defeat to most people. What went wrong, do you think? There's been a lot of blame-slinging. Um, the Americans have uh, said in a series of sort of media articles that they were hoping that the Ukrainians would concentrate all of their offensive capabilities in the direction of the Azov Sea and, and achieve a breakthrough. It's very clear now the Americans were helping plan this counteroffensive. On the Ukrainian side, they chose a different strategy to keep the Russians occupied all along the front line and look for a weak point, which is what they did a year before in a very successful Kharkiv counteroffensive where they liberated an entire region. Um, they just waited till they found a, a, a weak point and then used their shorter supply lines to, to pr- punch through wherever they, they found that weak point. That obviously didn't happen. 
Um, and, you know, all of this uh, Western donated equipment, these Leopard tanks that Canada gave, uh, I mean, this week it's been acknowledged that these tanks are now being used in, in defensive positions, which is just not what they were designed for. That stalemate, if we can call it that, has led to some political cracks showing up within uh, the United Front in Ukraine. And you've been writing about that. How are those cracks appearing? Well, the first and most dangerous crack is this disagreement between Mr. Zelensky and General Zeluzhny over how to describe the war. And Mr. Uh, General Zeluzhny did refer to it as a stalemate and did suggest that a big victory might not be around the corner. And Mr. Zelensky has always stuck to this very optimistic, uh, you know, keep the people sort of chin up uh, that victory is around the corner, that we will eventually drive the Russians out of all of Ukraine. And now those messages are increasingly at odds with each other. And we see in polling that trust for Mr. Zelensky, while still very high, is starting to come down from in the 90s to in the 70s. Still a very uh, an amazing figure for uh, a politician who normally would be heading towards re-election next year. But that's 20% lower than the trust that's placed in the military leadership. And we're also seeing other figures, former President uh, Petro Poroshenko, Kiev Mayor Vitaly Klitschko, sort of after two years of, or almost two years of not criticizing the leadership, starting to play politics again, which is a, a sign that... That, that unity is, is is starting to fall apart. Vitaly Klitschko said that Zelensky is turning into an autocrat. It's important to remember that uh, Mr. Klitschko has never been a fan of Mr. Zelensky's, and, mm. and this is not like one of uh, a key ally turning against <laughs> the presidency. These two men have never been uh, working on the same page, including during the Battle of Kiev. And that is something that, a narrative that will gain traction, because as I said, next year was supposed to be an election year in Ukraine. Mr. Zelensky's five-year term ends uh, next spring. That election almost certainly won't happen. It's very difficult to hold one with 15% of the country under military occupation, millions of people living outside the country as refugees. But the legitimacy of Mr. L- uh, Zelensky's rule will look different to a lot of people after that point. I'll let you go, but we're about to talk about this, this fight in the United States over funding for uh, the continuing Ukrainian <coughs> effort. How worried are people? Is it the sense when you talk to, to, to Ukrainians that the world has looked away from this war a couple of years into it? There's definitely a growing fear that um, the world is paying less attention. They're starting to become interested in, more interested in their domestic worries, which is understandable. The war in Gaza has taken a lot of attention away from here. Simply fewer foreign journalists on the ground is an, an easy measure of the attention being paid. So, yeah, they're worried the world is not paying attention. They understand that uh, you know, when Ukraine falls off the, the front pages, as it has, uh, it also falls to the back of um, sort of political agendas uh, in, in Ottawa, Washington, Brussels as well. So they're, they're very concerned about the direction this is all heading in and trying to deliver the message in Washington that, uh, you know, the, the fight for democracy what, that you said was so important two years ago is the same fight today. Mark, good to talk to you as always. Thank you very much for this. Thanks, Matt. Mark McKinnon is the Globe and Mail's senior international correspondent. He is in Kyiv. Kira Rudik is a member of the Ukrainian parliament. Hello to you. Hello, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. How worried are you about where your country finds itself 651 days into this war? Well, I uh, am worried indeed, uh, but I also have this huge trust in our military forces. Today is, by the way, as a day of our armed forces, and we are celebrating it. It's a bittersweet celebration, but it is also a time for us to say how grateful we are. And I want to remind our listeners that those are the people who are defending the free world. 
How would you describe the mood in Ukraine right now? Mark said in some ways that, that people feel depressed, not just because winter is coming and it's going to be dark and perhaps cold, but also the progress that people perhaps had hoped for in this war hasn't materialized. How would you describe the mood in your country? Well, people are exhausted. That is true. But I have not heard any single person quietly or like on some sidelines saying, oh, we should stop doing this or, oh, we should change our strategy or something. Everybody have already their skin in the game. So most of Ukrainian families has either somebody fighting at the front or lost somebody at the front. So it is very personal for us. And we started to realize that this will be a long war. And I think this is what is very different, that people are uh, understanding right now that uh, it will not be over anytime soon. We heard about a senior military leader who clashed with President Zelensky saying that the war was at a stalemate. How confident are you in, in President Zelensky's handling of the war? Well, I think, first of all, the expectations that were set, they were set for like some specific, you know, goals. These goals were get as many lands uh, or liberate as many villages. But if you look at it with the results that we and our army have showed by the end of the year, there is a progress, but it's just measured differently. Look, right now, our armed forces have reported to destroy 300,000 of Russian soldiers and then like more than 3,000 tanks and the planes. And we have done it with much smaller resources available, but we have destroyed Russia's military force in a very sustainable way. However, Unfortunately, it is not enough to motivate people. But I think the work that's being done was really significant. Mm. To your point, I mean, this war is going to, could last a very long time. There are reports that U.S. and European officials have been in talks with the Ukrainian government about what peace negotiations with Russia might look like. Is it time to start thinking about what those negotiations could look like? I think the question is absolutely different, is who or what, are able to make sure that Putin will keep his part of the bargain. And as of right now, I do not see any of our partners and allies, honestly, anyone in the world who could say, well, if there would be peace, it would last. Putin would not just get more forces and attack you again. And Matt, we have seen that already. We have already been into like, uh, quote unquote, some peace agreement with Putin and look where it got us. So there is one thing that Ukrainian people would not take to have unrealistic peace because we all know what's going to happen. We live what's going to happen. Mm. We've already sacrificed so much of what's going to happen. If you hope there's this illusion that you can agree with the dictator and things will be good, that you go with this illusion. And what's at stake is our lives. Do you think your hand will be forced with that? I mean, what we're seeing right now is government officials in the United States arguing about whether to continue to fund the war in Ukraine. So could, could you be forced into those negotiations because that funding may not come? So here is the thing. Well, of course, we are super, super very much concerned that we are so close to Christmas and there is still not of the decision. And I can tell you from the other side what I'm concerned of, and I have not received a very good uh, answer to that. So Putin already announced that for the next year, he's going to dedicate $100 billion specifically to the war. And he's going to conscript 170,000 people more to the war. 
And so if we know like that people is our responsibility, the funds and the um, military supply is something that we are expecting from our allies. And what we are speaking of right now is something that we have agreed on a while ago. And then a question on you, like if our hand can be forced. So it only can be done like, like with the political agreements, mm-hmm. right? And how would President Zelensky would go against the total majority of people who do not think that this peace is possible. It will be uh, not something that I think he would ever do and not something that he would politically do. Just before I let you go, we are out of time, but do you feel, Mark was talking about in some ways Ukrainians feeling like the rest of the world has has turned away from this war. Do you feel that? Do you feel that the rest of the world has lost its focus on Ukraine? Uh, we have been there because it happened in 2014. This is, this is why we know how it feels. And this is not yet just that. And I take it as a part of our responsibility as politicians and diplomats to make sure that even if there is like slightly less attention, that this attention and support does not go away. Kira, I'm really glad to talk to you. Thank you very much and take care. Thank you. And glory to Ukraine. Kira Rudik is a member of the Ukrainian parliament. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. In the lead-up to a decision on any new money for Ukraine, U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan had this to say. Any member of Congress who does not support funding for Ukraine is voting for an outcome that will make it easier for Putin to prevail. A vote against supplemental funding for Ukraine will hurt Ukraine and help Russia. It will hurt democracy and help dictators. U.S. Speaker, House Speaker Mike Johnson says that Republicans will not fund any additional aid to Ukraine without major changes to a southern border policy in the United States. Mark Kansian is a retired Marine colonel, senior advisor to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Mark, hello to you. Thanks for having me on the show. The director of the White House Office of Management and Budget said that cutting off the flow of U.S. weapons and equipment to Ukraine will kneecap Ukraine on the battlefield. What would it mean for Ukraine, from your perspective, to not get this additional funding to continue its war effort? It, it, over the long term, it's going to be devastating to Ukraine if the United States does not continue its uh, aid across the board, uh, not just military aid, but also economic support and humanitarian uh, aid. Um, it, it's important to keep in mind that this doesn't happen all, all, of a, all at once. Um, there's a long pipeline of uh, weapons and munitions and supplies that is flowing. So uh, the Ukrainians will be receiving uh, aid from the United States for months, even years, but that flow will decrease o- over time. And it's important to keep in mind that militaries in combat need a continuous flow of uh, uh, munitions to replace what they fire, weapons to replace what they've lost, and then supplies across the board like spare parts and uh, medical uh, supplies, things like that. And if they don't get that, uh, then they become less and less effective over time. And that's what we will see with the Ukrainians over time. Uh, they will be unable to launch any attacks on their own. They would, certainly would not be able to do another offensive in the spring. And then 
um, over uh, with more time, they would be uh, in danger of not being able to repel uh, Russian attacks. What is your understanding as to why Republicans are using this package uh, for Ukraine as a bargaining tool for border security? The New York Times reported that there was a briefing yesterday about this. It devolved into a screaming match um, between various partisan officials and people walked out of the meeting. Why is this happening? Um, it's important to keep in mind first that there's a lot of support, bipartisan support for aid to Ukraine. And if the package got to the floor of the House, uh, it would pass. Uh, probably about half the Republicans would vote for it and all of the Democrats. The problem is that the Republican majority is so slim that a relatively small group can dictate uh, what happens uh, in the House. Um, one of the mechanisms that um, – the Republican leadership has been uh, looking at is to pair Ukrainian uh, aid with border security, which is an, uh, a uh, uh, an issue that's very important to re Republicans. Uh, and there have been uh, uh, continuing ne negotiations to uh, to do that. The problem is that the Republicans want to make changes, want to enhance uh, security on the border. They also want to tighten. Um, uh, regulations for uh, refugees and uh, try to keep uh, potential uh, you know, uh, undocumented immigrants you know, out at their home uh, countries. Um, um, the Democrats are very uncomfortable with that. You know, the activists, the immigration activists are uh, complaining that the Biden administration is trading uh, uh, immigration for foreign policy. Uh, so on both sides, uh, we're in a difficult position but I think over the long term, they'll find a deal. What's the message internationally um, that this fight over funding sends to, to, to other nations if the U.S. doesn't end up providing additional aid to Ukraine? Uh, if the United States does not provide additional uh, aid, uh, it sends a very bad message to many other countries. Um, for example, China and Taiwan are watching this very closely. Uh, many believe that this is an indicator about um, how the United States might uh, support Taiwan. Uh, and if the uh, outcome is that the United States gets tired and will back away, um, you know, that raises questions about um, whether the United States would uh, help Taiwan and therefore maybe give an opening uh, to the Chinese. But there are many others, you know, the Israelis are watching, NATO allies are, are watching. Um, the United States has global commitments. Uh, and if this funding doesn't go through. The concern is that the United States may not be willing to step up to those commitments it's made over the last 70 years. What would that mean for Ukrainians? Again, as this war enters, what some people, including leading generals, have called, uh, or at least one leading general has called a stalemate. Could this fight over funding and perhaps uh, a reluctance among some U.S. lawmakers to continue to, to fund this war, could that push Ukrainians toward having to try to figure out what peace negotiations would look like? Unfortunately, I think that's where we would be. If, if the United States cut off its uh, funding, uh, the Ukrainians could not continue to, um, uh, to fight the war. I mean, the U Europeans would still be providing some um, support, but it wouldn't, wouldn't be enough. Uh, they would really need to uh, negotiate uh, an end, likely an in-place ceasefire, which would in effect be a partial uh, Putin victory. We're just about out of time. We just have a minute or so left. How do Americans feel about this? I mean, our lawmakers, there's partisan efforts underway, election looming and what have you, but how do Americans feel about the ongoing support of, of the war in Ukraine? 
The um, well, first, there's a lot of support for Ukraine itself. Mm. Uh, the the debate is about um, uh, providing aid and how much aid and uh, uh, and whether it's uh, you know having an effect. Um, the most recent polls have actually been quite encouraging that Americans do support uh, aid to Ukraine and um, and certainly in Congress you see strong bipartisan support. That's why I believe that eventually they'll. Uh, find a deal on uh, Capitol Hill to provide uh, aid, not just to Ukraine, but also to Israel, uh, and uh, we'll be able to go forward. There's still a big question, as we heard earlier, what is the Ukrainian theory of victory? Uh, And I I think that's going to be important because at some point, we're seeing it now, um, nations want to know, okay, how is this going to end? How is Ukraine going to win this war? Mm. Or are we just in this for year after year after year, a forever war. We'll leave it there. I'm glad to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on the show. Mark Hansian is a retired Marine Colonel, Senior Advisor to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.